Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to Podcast 126 for August 10th, 2011. My guest today, I'm very excited to have on Bob Lutz. He's the author of the book, Car Guys vs. Bean Counters, The Battle for the Soul of American Business. Now, he retired in late 2010 as the vice chairman of General Motors, and during his 47-year career in the auto industry, Bob worked for GM, Ford, BMW, and Chrysler, and he's a legend in the Detroit area where I grew up. Now, in this podcast, we'll discuss Bob's new book, his thoughts on designing products that create value and excitement for customers, as well as some of his thoughts on leadership. Now, Bob's a car guy and a designer through and through, so a lot of what he says isn't classic lean thinking, if you will, but I think it's interesting and thought-provoking, and I think you'll find a lot of parallels, or at least a lot to talk about. So if you go to the blog post for this episode at leanblog.org slash 126, you can talk about this with other listeners. You can also download a transcript, and you can download a copy, a version of the transcript that has some of my comments embedded, um, things that I've thought about and reflected upon and reacted to from Bob Lutz's comments. So I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you'll come back for more podcasts. You can subscribe at leanpodcast.org. Well, our guest again is Bob Lutz talking about his new book, Car Guys vs. Bean Counters. Now, Mr. Lutz, you're a car guy extraordinaire, and you've been critical of MBA education and mindset. So I was wondering if you could describe how, what, what is a bean counter, and why is it that it's not just accountants who can become bean counters, unfortunately? Yeah, you know, uh, bean counters is not so much a profession in that uh, I know many uh, finance people who are uh, extremely skilled at, if, you know, finding value in the product and pushing that. But uh, the bean counter mindset is uh, a person who can be in any field, sometimes you encounter him in engineering, who absolutely want to quantify everything want to uh, go for cost minimization on everything and who understand cost and cost reduction, but they do not understand value creation in terms of making a superior product or offering a superior service that's going to delight customers, create good word of mouth, and have the customers buying again. So I've heard you talk before that you know the, the customer's not always right. Um, you know, besides relying on on your gut and decades of experience, how can people go about determining what's of value, what's really going to delight and excite customers? Well, I think the best the best way is I mean the way we do it in the car business is we do a full scale model of the future car and we test it with respondents against competition with all of the cars disguised so they can't tell what brand it is because. The minute they know what brand it is, they vote by brand instead of uh, instead of by how well they like the car. And that's that's a, another reason why uh, in research techniques, uh, the reason I say the customer isn't always right is because what the customer verbalizes as his or her desires are often the socially responsible or the socially acceptable reasons, but they don't get at the hidden purchase motivation. Uh, for instance, if you uh, were to ask men, uh, how important to you is it to have a $10,000 wristwatch? 
uh, most guys will say that's not important at all. Wristwatches are here to tell time. Uh, a $30 Timex will do just as well. And, you know, you believe that at your peril. Uh, the same is true with cars. If you ask people this tired old question, um, when it comes to cars, what is important to you? Is it styling, uh, safety, convenience, et cetera? Uh, the average respondent will say uh, styling is not important, um, performance is not important. I want a solid, reliable car with plenty of room for my family. In other words, they're always giving you rational reasons. But humans aren't rational beings, and when inside themselves there is this boiling pot of emotion and lust, and uh, inevitably they'll go out and buy a good-looking car. That's why I say that you have to understand the hidden motivations of customers or find research techniques to get at those. Now, I, I saw you give a talk um, at Harvard Business School in the late 90s. I was a MIT student at the time. You were probably talking to a lot of uh, budding bean counters. And I think I recall you talking about a goal in design uh, being to create products that people really love or really hate, that it was okay to have products that were hated by some instead of well, sure. you know, being because, just okay. Here's, here's what happens, and this is typical of the bean counter mentality, and I've seen I've seen perfectly good automobile proposals wrecked dozens of times by trying to get rid of dissatisfiers. In other words, uh, they will try to get rid of, based on research, <clears throat> they'll try to get rid of every controversial element on the car. And uh, this is what I call putting it through the blanderizer. And at the end of the day, the car comes out totally neutral, uh, has no character, doesn't displease anybody, but also doesn't please anybody. So you're far better off, since since human beings are wildly diverse uh, in their tastes and desires, and whether they're conservative, stylistically conservative, or stylistically uh, progressive, you have to do a a very bold design that has an emotional impact, and then... If, if you get a situation where 50% of people absolutely love it and 50% hate it, that's ideal. That's far better than 80% of people saying, yeah, it's okay. Because if 80% say it's okay, it means it's everybody's second choice. And nowadays, nobody buys second choices anymore. They don't have to. So maybe if we can shift a little bit from you know, design to, to management, Principles. Um, one question, I guess, I would ask though about the auto industry first. Um, where do, where would the big three be today if they had been run more by the car guys? And, and do you think there's any hope of that balance shifting in the future toward the car guys? Well, I, I think it has shifted toward the car guys at, at all three of the Detroit companies, and it's especially manifest in General Motors and Chrysler. If you look at the cars that they're putting out, uh, I mean, these cars are are just done exquisitely well. They're well-designed. They have beautiful, rich interiors, uh, and so forth. Uh, manufacturing was never really shortchanged that much because um, the bean, uh, manufacturing is a rational activity. Um, you put in a certain amount of capital and labor. Uh, you build a certain plant, et cetera, et cetera. You can calculate your costs of that plant down to the, down to the labor minute and uh, you've got a, a full manufacturing cost of every unit, every unit made in that plant. So 
Manufacturing is a rational activity. It contains very little emotion, and therefore the bean counter mentality in optimizing manufacturing actually works pretty well. And I would say um, American manufacturing, certainly in the automobile business, American manufacturing today, I will put up against anybody in the world, uh, German, Korean, Japanese, uh, all the big three plants today are wonderful examples of lean manufacturing, just-in-time, hand-on cords, et cetera, et cetera, uh, no in-process inventory, uh, error-proofing on the line, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, everything is there. Uh, the only reason why any country would still have a manufacturing advantage over the United States would be purely due to exchange rates or labor costs. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, shifting um, to, to the management topics here, I saw an interview you did with the Wall Street Journal where you were critical of what you called the total quality approach to management, and, and you were advocating for you know, autocratic CEOs. Can, can you elaborate on that? Well, uh, I, I did have a problem with the, with the TQM consultants in the, what was it, the 90s, where they descended on all companies and uh, uh, you know went th- we went through these elaborate offsite deals that lasted five days and everybody held hands and and that's when all the posters went up saying well, listen to everyone with respect uh, there is no such thing as a bad idea and I mean that is unmitigated hogwash of course there's such a thing as a bad idea and the idea that uh, we should all be uh, that it, it, it should be sort of a democratic, pleasant, wonderful chaos in a company where everybody discusses endlessly and nobody ever says, "Okay, look, we've discussed this enough. We've got a decision to make, and we're going to go. We're going to go with B and not A." Well, then all of the people who were in favor of A are disappointed, but at least you've got a decision. And uh, speed is of the essence. It's better to make a marginal decision on time than to make a perfect decision too late. And uh, I've just seen too much of a vacillation, endless discussion. Well, we didn't come to agreement on that. Let's meet again next week and discuss it again. And, of course, nobody ever changes their mind. And if the boss doesn't step in and say, we have discussed this enough, We've got to make a decision, and here's how we're going to go. So there is, um, I think the United States industrially went too far in what I call participative decision-making, where the, the boss is afraid to step in and make the decision, and he's hoping the team will sort it out among themselves. I'll tell you, that doesn't work. It's about like a, a family with nine kids all milling around the house, and the parents say, well, you know, they'll sort it out. They'll they'll probably set the table at some point and cook the food. As, unless unless mom and dad set the direction, no, it's going to be chaos. And I look, I don't like working for autocratic bosses, and I don't think I was one. And I, I was when I had to be, but, I'm, you know, I was reluctant to step in and say, do it my way, because it's it's not the way you like to lead. But if you look at companies that are run by super autocrats like Volkswagen under Winterkorn and before Winterkorn, Ferdinand Pieck, where it was literally, you do as I say, my way or the highway, and he would not only tell them how to do it, he would tell them what to do. A totally autocratic system where everybody lived in fear, 
And I would hate to work for a company like that. And I, and I know that a fear-driven environment is not a pleasant one. But Volkswagen, Audi today is the most successful car company in the world. And they're on the cusp of becoming the world's largest automobile company, run by, run by total autocrats. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, my experience, and when I, when I worked at General Motors in the mid-90s, we had a plant manager who was one of the first GM people sent to work at NUMI uh, out in California. And mm -hmm. you know, I think that leadership style is, is not completely autocratic. It's certainly not completely participative. I was wondering if you could share some thoughts on, you know, lessons learned of, you know, from GM's partnership with Toyota at NUMI in terms of, you know, finding that balance in the management style. Yeah, I think in general the study of um, Japanese management techniques or Japanese leadership techniques as observed during the 70s and 80s uh, really helped helped uh, American leadership a lot um, because we kind of didn't have uh, a leadership style or the leadership style we had in the United States was often too autocratic or uh, bosses being so proud of having achieved their position, and since they had been mistreated when they were underlings, they said, well, now that I'm on top of the heap, I'm going to treat the people the way I was treated, make them jump, you know, demean people, tear them down in meetings and so forth. That was all bad stuff. Um, and, and very valuable lessons were learned from Numi, and um, you know, Chrysler got the same lessons from Mitsubishi and Ford from Mazda. So there, I think we, what we now have is a successful blend of um, the, the good parts of the Japanese consensus system and the participative system, and I think we're learning to re-achieve the balance because I think we went way too far the other way. You know, it's the usual pendulum reaction, and I think we're coming back to the middle now where people are empowered uh, but they they understand who the boss is. They understand they're under time pressure. They understand they've got to come to a decision, and if they don't, the boss is going to make it for them. That is certainly the way GM is being run right now, and I, I think it's the right balance. Yeah, and one, one other question on balance. In the book, I thought it was interesting where you talked about your, your last stint at GM, trying to find in your own leadership style the balance between teaching and telling. Um, can, yeah. can you share a thought on that? Well, I like to I like to teach rather than tell because telling is I think the lazy man's way. You just say, look, I'm, I, I don't have time to explain it to you. Do it this way. I think that way, it, it, people will accept it, but they'll accept it grudgingly, and um, they, they'll, there's a certain amount of resentment. But if you say, look, uh, based on my experience and on similar situations I've viewed in the past. If we did it your way, here's what I see happening. I've not only observed this once, I've observed it three times in my career, um, and that's why uh, I'm reluctant to say yes to your proposal because my experience tells me it doesn't work. And you, you actually cite the examples. Well, that takes a little longer, but hopefully the individual has learned a little something and at least he or she understands why you decided against their proposal. So... If the time is available, and let's face it, it usually is, um, I always like to explain. The more unpopular the decision, the more I go out of my way to try to explain it. 
And uh, Mr. Lesmay, just one last question um, on the topic of car guys versus bean counters. I mean, in the book, you talk about this a little bit. Um, if you can share some thoughts on the idea of, you know, the car guy being applicable in other industries. You use Steve Jobs as a positive example of this. Um, what would you think, for example, should hospitals run by doctors? Do you, do you think they're the well, equivalent? Not as it seems, Lyle, you could argue that General Motors and Ford right now are two successfully run car companies that are, and even Chrysler, not run by what I would call car fanatics or product people. But it's it's not so much that they have to be subject experts in the product or service that they're putting out. It's that they have to be passionately committed to the excellence of the product or service that they are producing. And so if uh, I, 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 I'm not sure it would work to have hospitals run by doctors because doctors sometimes are notoriously poor administrators. So I see nothing wrong with having professional administration running a hospital provided that that hospital administrator is passionate about listening to listening to the doctors who serve on the staff and is passionately committed to providing the best healthcare experience for the hospital customers that are that are possible as opposed to as many do focusing all their time on where can we cut costs? Where can we reduce receptionists? Whose phone lines can we take away? Can we go from five ambulances to four? Uh, as, you know, spending all their time on cost optimization and hoping that they can somehow get away with it without the customers noticing. So it, it's more a mentality thing than it is being a subject expert. Mm -hmm. well, well, thank you very much. Again, our guest has been uh, Bob Lutz. Thanks for talking and sharing your reflections and, and talking about your new book, um, Car Guys versus Being Counters. I'm really enjoying it so far, and I hope others Great. will go out and check it out. It shouldn't take you too much, too long to read. It's an easy read. You get through it in about three hours. Yeah. I got <laughs> okay. through a good chunk of it last night, and uh, really a, a, a pleasure to be able to talk to you today. Okay. Thanks very much. Good talking to you, too. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.